0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome back to New Books in Historical Materialism. I am your host, Stephen Dozeman. The election of Donald Trump in 2016 shocked and appalled a number of people, forcing a critical reevaluation of what was possible and what we ought to be vigilant about. A debate soon emerged about whether Trump represented the possibility of fascism in the United States. This debate centered around the ways in which fascism has often presented itself, the rhetoric and aesthetics in particular, often at the expense of examining the underlying economic form. Against this tendency, Michael Joseph Roberto has emerged with a corrective, the coming of the American behemoth, arguing that fascism is not composed of moral relics of the past, but is a distinctly modern movement, tied inherently to the nature of capitalism. Turning to the United States in the roaring 20s and the depressed 30s, Roberto has several interlinked tasks. Primary to the book is reframing our understanding of fascism as a reaction against revolutionary working-class politics. It is an attempt by the bourgeois to maintain order in society via the use of the state or various cultural apparatuses, such as advertising, to maintain political discipline. The United States, being the most advanced capitalist country in the world, is not only not immune to this sort of movement, but is uniquely vulnerable. And that vulnerability has not gone away in our times. To argue this, Roberto not only examines Marx's capital, but a whole series of texts written in the period he's examining to show that his conclusions are not terribly new. They've simply been forgotten. The result is a study that combines history, economics, and cultural analysis to produce a much-needed corrective to our understanding of what fascism is and how we might fight it. Michael Joseph Roberto is a retired history professor. He has also worked as a journalist and political activist in North Carolina. His writing has appeared in a number of places, including The Monthly Review and Socialism and Democracy. Michael Joseph Roberto, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, very excited to have you. So the first question I always like to ask us at the beginning, could you just introduce yourself to listeners and just tell us a bit about who you are and what your main areas of interest are, what your work and research tends to focus on? Okay.
0: Um, Well, um, let me start off by saying that now... I'm a musician and a writer and not an academic. Uh, So I'm living my dream now at, uh, at at what uh, is called the exploration of old age in my early mid seventies, whatever. Uh, fortunately I feel a little bit younger. So I'm playing music, putting a band together and working on a sequel to my book that we're going to talk about today, the coming of the American behemoth. Um, and uh, and uh, I've lived in Greensboro now since the early '80s. I was a journalist for many years uh, with a, a weekly, a black weekly paper, and then the daily paper, and uh, did some uh, serious writing um, that was published in newspapers about Iran-Contra and the Iran-Contra scandal. And uh, but then uh, I finally finished my dissertation. Uh, at Boston College, and got a job teaching at A and and became the contemporary world historian there. And uh, it was soon after I, uh, after a few years of adjunct and, uh, being an adjunct, and then getting a tenure track job, uh, I uh, started working on the fascism. What has become the, my life's work, pretty much, which is fascism. I, uh, Greg Meyerson and I published uh, some very serious stuff in, uh, in a few journals. And, uh, and then, uh, finally I was able to get, uh, uh, my book out, uh, which was uh, essentially the first part of what we had uh, conceived of as a joint, uh, a joint venture. And he's gone, he went his way, uh, looking at some serious questions. And so I, I went further into the history. So, Uh, What I do now is basically observe what's going on, take notes every day, uh, uh, work on this book and do a lot of practicing of uh, congas and drums that you see in the background.
1: Yeah, good way to spend your retirement. So to kick things off, uh, a good place to start would perhaps be your definition of fascism, which you describe as the dictatorship of capital. To begin with, could you unpack this definition a bit and how this understanding differs from more mainstream ways of thinking about what fascism is? Okay,
0: rather than rather than deconstruct from a declarative statement, let me try to work toward that statement. So it will be a definition that will be as succinct as I can possibly make it. To begin, any attempt to define fascism has to be historical and it has to be understood from the standpoint of political economy. Therefore, We cannot discuss fascism without talking about capitalism, as Max Horkheimer had written uh, in 1939. So fascism then historically must be understood as unique to the contemporary world, unique to the contemporary global experience, and therefore a part of that epoch in history that we call late capitalism. That said, everything that my predecessors, who I believe were sound Marxists, despite their ideological uh, inclinations or imperatives at the time, in the 1930s all agreed that fascism is the rule of capital itself and in the case of Germany, the most ruthless and terrorist form of monopoly finance capitalism. Now, surprisingly enough, what I discovered was a discourse that reinforced that definition. And when writing my book, I put out, not as clearly as I should, what my predecessors had said, and then tried to suggest that it was even deeper than that, I am now prepared to say that in my view, fascism is the end game of monopoly finance capitalism. Historically, fascism is the end of finance capital because fascism is the dictatorship of the regime of capital over all aspects of our life and i started to get at this in my book when in the beginning i took Marcuse's construct of terrorist and non-terrorist processes and as my predecessors in the 30s were able to do their analysis their combined analyses analyses all looked very, very deeply at the terrorist forms, the terrorist uh, fascist processes, the treatment of labor, the, the, uh, the power of the oligarchy in the 20s during the Great Boom, and the continued power of the oligarchy in the 30s, which attempted to quash the New Deal and didn't succeed, though the New Deal did not succeed on its own, which is a question that I'm sure will come up in our discussion. So today, when I think about defining fascism, I have to think about it dynamically. It's not a fixed definition. Therefore, it's a working definition, but as a working definition, I take into consideration where I am in the moment and how I understand fascism in the moment and then connect the past and the work that I've done to this moment and then look at the vantage, and then try to, as a Marxist, understand the vantage point of the future from the standpoint of both the past and the the ties that we got here. And so on that basis, I define fascism as the end game of the regime of capital. And its form in in our lifetime, in this world, is, is now for us, the American behemoth. The monster, as Marx said in Capital, wrote in Capital, the monster that is fruitful and multiplies. Capital moving across a, 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 a plane, a level plane, and devouring everything. But at the same time, our alienation is such that we are thrust into this Devouring process without recognizing that. This. Devourment could not go on unless we allowed it to. Which means to be anti-fascist, which means being anti-capitalist, which means struggling against the regime of capital in whatever ways we can. And I think that's what a Marxist, a work a Marxist definition of fascism is.
1: So while recovering this lost episode of history, your book focuses on the years 1920 up to 1940, Uh, you spend a lot of time also trying to recover and reconstruct a lost dialogue on fascism by citing texts written in the 1920s and 30s about fascism. I'm wondering if you could say maybe an introductory remark on these sources, your method or approach, and what you're hoping to show us by relying so heavily on these sources.
0: Well, as as some historians have told me, if they're not necessarily sympathetic to the argument, the 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 recovery of these forgotten voices was, in many ways, serendipitous. I when Greg Myerson and I started to work on the book, um, as the historian. And the person who is interested in the historical roots, I, I started to become more aware of some of the basic sources that discuss the depression from a Marxist standpoint. But it was the discovery of a couple of key words, like, for example, George Seldes, a great anti fascist, not a Marxist. But a a journalist with a conscience, a, a radical guy who knew, who almost got killed on one of Mussolini's trains, you know, when he went to Italy. I mean, he wrote, he published a book in 1940 called Facts on Fascism. And it was Seldes who said, as a liberal, who said, we're focusing in the 30s. We focus too much on the small fry fascisti, the silver shirts, and all these, uh, yeah, all these people who came up and uh, presented uh, some idea of a movement or whatever, and they're nothing, because fascism in America doesn't look like Italian fascism. It doesn't look like German fascism. It looks utterly American, and. Big business is the source of fascist dictatorship in America. And then I started to look at his bibliography, and that's how I came, that's how I started to find some of these works. And I asked it. and as I found them, since I had not been trained as an American historian, I had to read a whole lot of U.S. history, I mean, all the basic stuff and the good secondary stuff on the 20s and the 30s, like reading, reading for a field to do a PhD. And I did that in order to make sense out of what they were saying about fascism and how they had ignored all of these works that I kept fleshing out. And even after the book was published, I found two or three books that I wish I had found before I had published the book. Anyway, among them were the the greatest, some of the greatest thinkers in the 30s. Louis Corey, who was, who had a past in the Communist Party who was once named Louis Freyner? he was one of the founding members of the communist movement and, and the communist party in this country. And he got into trouble with the party of Freymery and then he came back as, as Louis Corey. And in 1934, he wrote a book called The Decline of Cap, the, 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 um, uh, uh, American Capitalism in Decline and Decay, okay? Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. The Decline of American Capitalism. And the Wall Street Journal said Lewis Corey is a Marxist, but we have to pay attention to what he's saying because nobody has done this kind of research. The great Arthur Schlesinger panned Lewis Corey in this and, and the decline of American capitalism is just a bunch of statistics that were thrown together, and there's there is no method, there's no coherence to it. Schlesinger proved his learned ignorance in Latin, "Doctor Ignorancia," his learned ignorance about Marxism and about the Marxist view of what the depression was all about, and so I. In discovering Corey's work, first the decline of American capitalism, which was published in '34, and then in '35 he published a book he called *The Crisis of the Middle Class*, which really became extremely important to me because in that book he and he clearly clearly states that that the reaction of the petty bourgeoisie becomes fascist. It becomes fascism when it merges with the reactionary big bourgeoisie and then does its work. And in the 1930s, we had a predecessor for Trump. It was Huey Long, the virtual dictator of Louisiana. Who FDR feared as one of the two most dangerous men in the United States, the other being Douglas MacArthur, because Douglas MacArthur had, as I write in my book, had led the charge uh, of the uh, the the cavalry the cavalry charge against uh, uh, the Bonus Marchers who had come to Washington hoping to get the bonus that they were promised, fighting in the great war of 1914-1918 anyway Huey Long was the dictator of Louisiana and he, he if you study his rise and his appeal you can see the roots of Trump because like Huey Long Trump represented the 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 uh, the resentment All of this boiled up anger of the petty bourgeoisie, the most most regressive elements of the petty bourgeoisie in this country, but was in bed with Wall Street. And Louis Corey's definition fits Trump's presidency beautifully. So that's one source, just one important source. Another important source who I'll mention is a woman named Carmen Hyder who I spend a great deal of time on in, in, in the book and who was an inspiration. She was. She had a PhD in history from Columbia University, went to Italy and stayed in Italy for several years, observed the Mussolini regime's rise. They wrote a book in 1930 called Capital and Labor in, in Italy and then came back, got a job at the Brookings Institution and then started, then toured the country for a while and then wrote a book in 1934, Do We Want Fascism? And it was Heider who presciently wrote that fascism, again, as the the political instrument of the ruling class, fascism could come to power in the United States within the framework of the two-party system. And at the time, she said this would happen with the Republicans because the democratic new deal was, had failed. When she wrote the book, the national recovery administration, which everyone hoped would restore industrial vitality to the system had failed because the Roosevelt administration gave all the power to the people who were responsible for it, big business, corporate enterprise. So she saw through this. And again, what she wrote about the rise of fascism in America in the 30s was prescient. It was remarkably, remarkably accurate then and amazingly resonant in the moment, given the situation that now exists. There are, uh, Stephen, there are so many others uh, I could... uh, Point out to you if you have a specific uh, author in mind, writer in mind. I'd be glad to, more than happy to try to, you know, answer your question.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll actually jump right off of that. So continuing uh, with trying to understand the nature of fascism and tying in this kind of long lost dialogue uh, that you've been talking about, you rely very heavily early on on several texts such as A.B. McGill and Henry Stevens' The Perils of Fascism in 1938. Um, You already mentioned Lewis Corey's The Decline of American Capitalism in 1934 and Marx's own Capital to show that fascism as an attempted subversion of revolutionary movements is inherently connected to contemporary capitalism. Could you tease out and explain the economic underpinnings of your understanding of fascism here?
0: Okay, I try to do this in chapter two of the book um, where, where I try to demonstrate that what Lewis Corey explained uh, about capitalist crisis in the U.S. economy and the inability to resolve the crisis within, within the paradigm of capitalist accumulation because of capitalist accumulation. Corey's argument based his argument on the argument that Marx made in, in volume one of capital on the, uh, the, the general law of capitalist accumulation. And I don't want to reduce, thing to, reduce things to simplest terms, but basically I think what I tried to get across to my readers was that fascist processes in here in the general law of capitalist accumulation, because the general law of capitalist accumulation is based on the absolute necessity of, of exponential capitalist profit and growth. But as Marx also showed in that chapter, within the paradigm of capitalist growth is all is also the progress, of the, the, the the paradox of increasing misery within a rising sea of plenty, and that's because of the fundamental contradiction between the forces of production and the relations of production, and who owns and controls the relations of production. So... The paradox of capitalist progress in the 20s and 30s meant that in the great boom of the 20s, an unprecedented explosion of capitalist growth, all of the imperatives imperatives connected to the the general law of capitalist accumulation, meaning growth and profit for the few at the expense of the many, were, were proceeding until the falling rate of profit as Corey saw it busted open the whole economy in 1929 and that has to do with the fact that the economy the growth in the economy had already become stagnant I mean Corey's book lays this out beautifully profits declined in the boom itself and profit became more speculative and this is the and until until everybody got wise that that whatever the product was supposedly worth, it was not worth on paper. And you have a crisis uh, that, uh, that then makes all of the imperatives of profit even greater because now, you, now you've got to, in order to maintain profit levels, you have to slash production. And so the Roosevelt's National Recovery Administration was based on the idea that we're going to restore production by limiting, by destroying whatever we have that already exists. So what wow, they killed? How many? Six million piglets and, and burned corn uh, cornfields and wheat fields and everything just to. Uh, this is what Schimpater called creative destruction. The impulse of creative destruction in capitalism is what takes us to fascism. And I'm really amazed that there aren't more people, particularly Marxists, saying this. This is the kind of discourse we need. And not one person can be right about everything. I learned that as an historian. There are no definitive works there are works that are building blocks and then there are also works that try to tear down what we're building and that's that that is happening to a certain extent these forgotten voices were forgotten deliberately and they were not forgotten deliberately by conservative historians it was liberal historiography that is responsible for this why because of the of anti-communism because of the fear of Marxist analysis. Now we live in a time when the Marxists can't even get, get it right amongst themselves. We continue to define fascism now as an extension of culture and politics and now it's also extended to identity. It gets us further and further away. From understanding that fascism is a functional property of monopoly finance capitalism, especially and comes and manifests itself concretely, brutally in times of crisis. And the crisis can become a crisis of class rule if not resolved, which is what happened in Germany. And it can happen here.
1: Yeah, we'll come back to that forgottenness uh, element later. You talk about it near the end of the book. But to get into the history a bit, you start with Warren Harding, who you argue set the political and economic agenda for much of the 1920s. This was an awkward spot to be in due to the social tensions of the post-war economy, but you argue Harding was able to navigate it quite well. Could you unpack his presidency a bit and how he set the national agenda for the years to come in terms? Terms of economic and foreign policy.
0: It's 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 kind of interesting unpacking Warren Harding's presidency. Warren Harding was a small-time uh, um, newspaper man. I mean, he was big in his city. Uh, where he he was a guy who was a backslapper, Everybody liked him, and he managed to get nominated, you know, as a result of backdoor dealing. He And the reason for that was he was considered the least harmless Republican to be in the White House, given the fact that there was this struggle between the old hardliners led by Henry Cabot Lodge and these new, these new uh, more market-oriented uh, folks who got themselves appointed to various cabinet positions? Um, all this happened because Harding was somebody who could, in his in his um, first speech to the the Congress in April, uh, in his first year in office, he said, "We need to put more business in government and less." Government in business. And that was, that's basically Warren Harding was the perfect non-strong man who, for the two and a half years that he was the president, allowed um, his various governmental agencies to become clearinghouses for Wall Street. And I go over this in my book. I mean, I, I you know, I talk about uh, the various uh, cabinet appointments and who they are. Um, and uh, it's, it's clear that Harding's presidency, as benign as it was, was instrumental to the boom. When Harding dies, Coolidge becomes the president and Coolidge believes in capitalism just as a puritan so he's even more captive to the to the people around him including hoover who then becomes the president in 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 19 in 1928 it's the republican party is like it's it's a it's a it's a front and center big business party That has no opposition because the boom is delivering, but delivering to whom? And that's the whole, that's the whole aura of the 20s. When, when you begin to understand how capital rules over a person, not only with a stick or a gun, but also with an ad about Listerine or some other kind of thing that people must have. And I get into this too. You see, it's the totality of the the regime of capital. It's the non-terrorist forces that really are so paramount today which makes the behemoth all present but at the same time so weak because it would fall from within not from without because it's the spell it's the sorcerer the, the behemoth is the behemoth is held together by the sorcery of the market the spell of the market. That's why fascism is the end game of capitalism. And these sources in the 30s, they begin to point to this. And again, I call on us as historians, sociologists, political scientists, to get into this discourse where we start to examine the components of this totality for what they are, fascist processes, Which become a clear fascist trajectory when the people cannot be ruled, cannot be governed in the same old way, and those who govern cannot govern in the same old way.
1: Yeah, if I can... Jump off what you were something you were just alluding to. So, the 1920s saw a meteoric rise in economic productivity, and it was paired with some new movements in the culture as well, with the rise of what you were saying more scientific forms of advertising and the promotion of new ideas about consumerism, citizenship, and patriotism that were all weaved together into a belief in what was often called the democracy of goods. Could you unpack the new ideological orientation that was being developed at this time?
0: Well, I think it could be summed up in, 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 in one simple statement, and then perhaps we could discuss this. It meant that democracy, real democracy, as the gurus of capitalist propaganda through advertising and promotions, whereas in public relations... The real, real democracy was in the marketplace, not the polling place. And so consumerism replaces citizenship, which is extremely bourgeois, especially petty bourgeois, then and now. Then and now. It is a complete dismissal of citizenship because people are not interested in politics. Why? Because there's something better to be interested in. Like what? Well, uh, oh, yeah, I know. To you see that new car? Co- wow. Yeah. Wow. Did you see that new Audi? Man. You know, this has, this connects with A recent book that was put out, uh, I can't remember the the author's name. I have it back in my library. It's called The 9.9%. Are you familiar with the work?
1: The title rings a bell.
0: Yes, it's it's The 9.9%. And basically, it's about about that part of America that is fundamentally the upper strata of the, the, the petty bourgeoisie and their complete selfishness their, complete, their, their 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 individualism is such that everything in life is privatized and of course when you start to put this together with your understanding of alienation as a result of capitalist exploitation what what the whole process what what it means to conform to this society especially in more and more difficult times what that does to the spirit the only outlet is to buy something so if you don't you know you don't want to feel like junk on the inside so you try to feel better on the outside and that's where that's why so many middle class people today especially young people white black latino whatever it's no it's a It's a condition of the middle class of the petty bourgeoisie. It's all about the I, and not about the we. And the I extends to the household. It's like the nuclear. In defense of the nuclear family, in reverse, I guess you would say the most regressive aspects of the nuclear family come out in a crisis of 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 an economic system that gave birth to the nuclear family. 500 years ago, 400 years ago, 17th century. I used to study all that stuff as an historian.
1: Yeah, there's also, I think, the question uh, kind of reversing it, what would that do to politics? Uh, it would have to, at some point, kind of convert it into a series of consumer choices rather than yes. more dynamic forms of collective participation.
0: Yes, and, I, 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 and that's why I think the Republicans are so successful, because the Republican Party is the party of business, which is why, in my view, the Republican Party now is the fascist party in America. The Republican Party is fascist. Why? Because it, it fills all of the criteria that, that I understand what fascism is from my research. Now, some people whose works... I I used Nancy McLean's book on the Second Klan, and she, uh, the value of her book was that she showed that in the in between 1920 and 1925, based on all the case studies in various cities, the Klan was solidly middle class. This idea of the Klan being poor white is nonsense. So draw a line between the reaction of the middle class in the 1920s and the reaction of the middle class now. And what do you think? It's the same old stuff? It's not. It's qualitatively different. Yeah. But she doesn't get it. She doesn't get it. And neither do many, many liberal historians. They do not get it because they don't want to. And that connects to American exceptionalism, which was one of your questions.
1: Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to this. Um, but to add another idea, so there were two threads uh, running through the boom of the 1920s, uh, culturally speaking. So on the one hand, there was the belief uh, in this democracy of goods that would lead to a more democratic society in which everyone took part in both work and ownership of property. Against this, there was a more cynical aristocratic thread that was skeptical of the common man's capacity to participate in the management of society. So looking at texts such as Thomas Carver's The Present Economic Revolution in the United States, Charles Fay's Business and Politics, and Edward Bernays' Propaganda, we are able to see that while some saw capitalism as the only road to democracy, others felt that it was in society's best interest to potentially curb democracy, for the sake of capitalism. Could you unpack this counter-thread that ran through the United States at the time? Well, that
0: chapter of the book, um, which I think is chapter four, was really eye-opening because the 20s is this period of boom. And you've got popularizers who are, like Thomas Nixon Carver, who, in, as an economist at, at Harvard, um, or something of an economist, because he was more, he he was not taken very seriously by many of his peers, but he wrote this book called "The Present Revolution in the United States" or something like that, and and basically said that in America, only in America. A capitalist revolution was taking place and he had the evidence to show that workers were becoming capitalists and capitalists were figuring out how to do more to get line to be with with workers. And it was, and his evidence was in company shareholding and stuff. He cherry picked the evidence, but the book was popular. And it was basically, he argued that you see only in America is this revolution of capitalist prosperity that will be uninterrupted. We have solved the problem of production here. We've solved the problem of consumption. And this is the real revolution as opposed to the revolution that's going on in what is now called the Soviet Union, then called Russia. So it was was basically, it had that purpose too. And it at the same time when he's popularizing this democratic capitalist vision, which is quackery. People like uh, Faye, who these business leaders, Sydney Faye, uh, are writing for businessmen. They are magnates themselves. They're CEOs, their are vice presidents, their owners, whatever. But they're also bigwigs in the Chamber of Commerce and in the National Association of Manufacturers. And these are the people, many of them, who in 1922 represented the largest delegation of the International Chamber of Commerce in, of Commerce in Rome. To, which was which was hosted by Mussolini, and they loved Mussolini. They loved the idea that Mussolini had restored order and also brought big business back into into, into production. The country was working, and he was he had showed how to do it. These guys came back, and they took this idea that the corporate enterprise could work here but they used it and they used it in ways that were not really important what was important was they wrote for themselves they wrote tracks like business and power where they talked about the necessity of business being organized organized business Meant that businessmen had to run for office, get elected, and then shrink government, reduce taxes. In other words, in other words, progress meant that for capitalist progress, you had to, you, you had to limit democracy to those who really could safeguard its existence, which was people like them, the titans of business. And so, in throughout the twenties, you have this common purpose here. And then I think what happens in the thirties is that this manifests itself when in, in the in the political uh, run of Huey Long, who ties all of these elements together, all of this popularized stuff about you know uh, about uh, prosperity. And the little man and what the little man can do if the little man is not held back by, 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 by the banker, by the industrialist. And I think um, this is all rooted in what I talk about in chapter four of the book. Thomas Nixon Carver is spreading a myth about capitalist progress while the ruling class is defining capitalist progress on its own terms—a democracy for the rich—while then perpetrating a democracy of goods through advertising and propaganda, which is what, um, which which is what the last part of that chapter is all about—the great propagandist. Uh, yeah. About
1: yeah. Yeah. Uh, Moving along. So while the 1920s boomed on, many in the lower and middle classes were still struggling to keep up economically. The middle classes developed many more reactionary orientations, including one in the form of a big recruitment boom for the Klan, predominantly composed, as you were saying earlier, of small businessmen, salesmen, and clerks. You argue that part of the Klan's recruiting success at this time was its ability to tap into both economic resentment and the entrepreneurial attitudes that had been cultivated. Could you speak to how this intersection of ideas led to these new forms of middle-class reaction? Well, I mean,
0: it's a marketing enterprise operating in a city or a community, it, it, it involved everyone everyone in the community so the ministers were involved and 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 everyone had to have uh everyone had to have the garments everyone had to have one thing or another that made him a clansman, and it, it it became i don't know it's a very strange thing it it, it became like like a club you know and and but it was a club of the good people who didn't have to wear sheets all the time. You know, they're they're clansmen, but they're closet clansmen. And unless something develops where they have to, you know. But I mean, violence was not, it wasn't about violence, it was about understanding where you were and whose place, you, you know, and what the whole thing was about. That's why it was so strongly communitarian. It was it's just bizarre. And as somebody who lives in the South now, and I've lived here for the last 40 years, I can still, I feel that. But in a different, it's in a different, it has different clothing, but it's still the same form. It's, it's very, it's, it's strange. It's unsettling. And it, you know, it's now it's much more subtle too. Because anti-communism in America is is more subtle than it's ever been. The anti-communism today makes the witch hunts of the the 50s look, you know, look like small potatoes. Not that it was small potatoes for the people who were brutalized by it. But to go back to your question about the 20s, you know, how did this thing get off the ground? It got off the ground because this was, you know... the first couple of years after World War One ended were tumultuous. We had a general strike. We had general strikes in 1919. We had, you know, we had the Palmer Raids in early 2020. We had the, you know, the whole anti-Bolshevik thing. Everybody was an enemy, and this this also was part of the whole business attack on 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 um, on democracy because. In order to be successful, you had to be a successful American. So it, then, this whole idea of 100% Americanism, which today we call white supremacy, it was then 100% Americanism. But it all... But you see, Stephen, I think what's interesting is that the Klan reaches its peak in 1925, just when the boom, the contradictions in the boom, are starting to set in. And there's more tension and there's more speculation in the economy. And there's more. The, the odd thing is, why did I could not I cannot understand this. Why did the Klan fall apart precisely when the material basis for growing resentment was there? And I think the, the answer is by then the power of the market had taken over the national the the white nationalist impulse in the south and in the midwest where the Klan was was the greatest in number i think again i think that's that has to do with the spectacle of the boom and the idea that you know in many ways carver's book was convincing hey this is going to we're going to go on and on and on nothing's going to happen and then boom it happens so
1: Yeah, moving along to the second half of the book and turning into the 1930s where the Great Depression starts, you look at the question, is the New Deal fascist? This was actually a big question at the time with a number of people seeing it as a potential gateway towards fascism. Could you unpack this question and how people at the time were often alarmed by the New Deal and its potential as a possible route to fascism?
0: Well. Um, the the concern that many liberals socialists and communists had for the new deal was that the new deal was a response to the cry of the middle class for relief from the depression but the new deal turned out to be a corporate arrangement until 1935, when the second New Deal, Roosevelt had no choice because of the labor militancy of 1934. So what does all this have to do with fascism? People who believe themselves to be good liberals, believed in the constitution believed in democracy as well as those marxists who saw who didn't see any of that saw had one thing in common and that was the new deal in 1934 was stalling and the reason why it was stalling is because none of the problems were overcome the new deal relied on The power of consumption aimed at recovery rather than investment in the economy. So there was no Keynesian turn until 1938, after the recession, the 37 recession within the depression. So what does all this have to do with fascism? People who believed in the competitive character of the American economy saw monopoly at work here and the Roosevelt administration pretty much participating in it. So there was a there an article in Harper's magazine. In 1934, by these two authors, the title was, Must America Go Fascist? And their response was, we had already gone f- toward fascism economically because the New Deal represented the corporate, the corporatism of, 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 of Italian fascism. The so-called arrangement between uh, capital and labor, which was no arrangement at all. It was a farce. So, so was the, the NRA was a farce. So, what is this here? What is this thing? Then the communists started to theorize that it was a transition to fascism. But you see, there were Americans who had already defined fascism in 1933, like Maury Aldrin in his in his book called Seeds of Re- of Revolt. He said fascism is the rule of big business. So you see, there was already this there was already this sense. That, that America actually to get out of the Depression when Roosevelt got, got elected, people like Walter Lippmann were encouraging Roosevelt to create a, a, an extraordinary council and suspend the Constitution. There were people in Congress calling for, uh, for um, a we need fascism like Mussolini's Italy. And that's what the New Deal essentially became. And was ultimately saved as a result of another greater capitalist crisis, and another greater global war, another imperialist war, and so we we wind up we wind up corralling fascist. We wind up corralling these fascist processes that are already giving more and more power to, to the ruling class under the auspices of state capitalism. And then we wind up going and fighting fascism elsewhere and therefore historically putting off what is now before us. Now, this is serious stuff. And I, I, I mean, this is ve- we don't have enough people understanding fascism from the standpoint of history and Marxist political economy. I don't know why. Maybe it's because there's no movement in this country that would produce the kinds of the kind of brilliant leadership that Carmen Heider said was necessary in 1934 to stop the march toward fascism that she saw. All of these questions, Stephen, are tied. You know, the amazing thing about your questions is that they were they were all interconnected. They were beautifully constructed, and they're all interconnected. And all I can do. Is just try to piece together everything that I could possibly do in the short time that we have together in order to make a, a simple plea. Read the book and then ask yourself how is it that what is discussed, however well, however succinctly, however poorly, whatever is discussed in this book is not in some way. Central to what we're looking at now, instead of what we are saying and writing about fascism. I have one guy in particular who, I've, you know, he's been writing books and he said, you know, he just published something a couple of weeks ago on uh, Counterpunch, the, you know, the cruelty of fascism. It's good analysis, but it's not what we need. Because he, this particular writer, never goes to the central question of capital itself and the regime of capital, and all one has to do is read is uh, the, "The Challenge and Burden of Historical Time" and the chapter on the regime of capital, and then read, and then uh, read, um, uh, uh, um, what was his name? Guy uh, Ernst. Uh, the Necessity, uh, not the um, the Enemy of Nature. Who wrote The Enemy of Nature?
1: I'm not sure. You know,
0: uh, a leftist, prominent leftist who, I mean, who, I'm embarrassed now. I can't remember the man's name. I'd have to go into my library and, and, and pull up the book. But, I mean, it's in The Enemy of Nature What's discussed is the force field of capital itself. It's an extension. In other words, we understand fascism from the standpoint of eco-fascism. Eco-fascism. Fascism Fascism is the dictatorship of capital over man and nature. The enemy of nature. It's the end of capitalism or it's the end of us. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, to to move along. um, So, in a chapter on FDR, you look at his own response to the growing fascist threat, which involved him attempting to thread a needle between recognizing fascism's source in the growing monopoly powers while also trying to preserve the very system that gave rise to such monopolies. This meant he produced a number of statements that indicated he understood the problem, at least to some extent, but he struggled to translate that understanding into policy. Could you explain the political balancing act Roosevelt attempted in the late 30s? I think
0: that first of all let me say I think that the, the, the tragedy of Franklin Roosevelt is that he was a man at odds with himself. He was a man who got elected and promised and promised something to the to the middle class. He, he, he promised them a New deal and yet yet he was a pragmatist. Uh, An experimenter and a fiscal conservative and was always uh, and was always opposed to the idea of of not having a balanced budget. Um, But but he was leaning more and more toward an understanding of the enemy of American democracy, which he encountered in the, in the, the American Liberty league, you know, that was led by the DuPonts. I mean, it was prominent rich Democrats, financiers who put together the Liberty league and, you know, called him a socialist and, and, attacked the new deal as, as socialists. And these were the people he called the economic Royalists. And, you know, in his, the night before he was reelected massively, He said, you know, these are that these people hate me and I welcome their hatred. But then because he feared going too far with government debt. Despite the fact that people were talking about him, in, 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 in that we needed what we needed was a compensatory economy. In other words, the, the government would would make up for the shortfalls of whatever happened in the market as a result of, uh, you know, the, the 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 rule of big business. He finally started to listen to some of his advisors, as I point out in the book, and. Um, It was the recession of 1937, which came as a result of him listening to to uh, to the conservatives that he began to understand that the problem in America was monopoly. And so in 1938. He calls upon Congress to investigate the growing power of monopoly in this country. And what's created is a remarkable thing called the Temporary National Economic Committee, which I think is one of the most, which is something that should be studied by every every student of contemporary American history for what it says about what where the U.S., economy was at the time, how it got there, and the problem of monopoly and calls for decentralization after the war was over. Now, why did Roosevelt do this? Because he realized that he was, he he was the, his decision to run for a third term in 1940 was based on his ability to understand that he was the only one who could save America from certain Republicans who were not acting like old Republicans, but Republicans who are more corporate, who, were, who according to some in his administration, were telling him these people are fascists. The tragedy is, is that everything that the Temporary National Economic Committee recommends in March of 1940 in its final report gets put up on a shelf and is lost because Roosevelt needs monopoly to fight fascism elsewhere. But in 1944, you know, in his state of the union address, where he lays out the, 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 the so-called second bill of rights, you know, he's, it's like a man basically knowing that he's at his end and he's looking back and he's saying, I didn't do this. And this is what must be done now that we've won the war against fascism. So Roosevelt is, he understands monopoly, defines monopoly as any entity that attempts to own and control the democratic state. Roosevelt's definition is remarkable because nobody ever talks about it. And the liberals who did in the works that I read, there were probably people like Brinkley and, and others. Uh, I mean, these guys said, oh, he was just playing ideological games. He was just playing footsie and stuff. And he wasn't. He wasn't. I, they They say this. They write this stuff because they think, they believe that fascism is not possible in the United States because this is America. That was Europe and the, the the idea of american exceptionalism within liberal historiography was so powerful that it destroyed all of these voices whose books were basically thrown into the trash heap of history un uh, and 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 unjustly i mean from the standpoint of the historian there's a whole credible discourse here it's beyond me it's beyond this discussion we're at the precipice when are we going to try to come to terms with the things that make us feel uncomfortable and I think that's why academic Marxists have been picked off one by one in in the academy over the past 20 years
1: yeah picking up some Another part of that dialogue that you've been trying to recover, in the final chapter of the book, you look at the work of Robert A. Brady, an economist and historian who wrote a couple books on fascism, The Spirit and Structure of German Fascism in 1937, and Business as a System of Power in 1943. While well, Brady was not a Marxist, his commitment to democracy brought him in parallel with some of the Marxist writers you've already discussed although he focused more heavily on the silent ways in which business leaders expressed fascism particularly at the ideological level with certain ideas about social structures and class hierarchy could you tell us what did brady find here
0: well what brady brady saw this first in the structure and, and the and the, the whole app, the apparatus of german fascism and the role that uh, trade associations played in the synchronization of, of, of uh, capitalist relations. In other words, how to, how to draw how to make connections between business enterprise and the public, while at the same time consciously building business into what Brady called a system of power in its own right. And this is how Brady saw the business system as essentially fascist, because in his book "Business as a System of Power," he he looked at betrayed associations and business practices in three fascist countries, uh, in uh, and in three uh, democratic countries, and basically saw the same processes uh, at work. All aimed at all aimed at, in all six uh, cases trade associations were were uh, were, uh, designed to promote the necessities of the market to the public and strengthening the idea of social of a a strong social foundation on the basis of these relations and it gave incredible power uh, for example, um, the National Association of Manufacturers in the first New Deal in the NR in the National Recovery Administration, it was NAM that NAM people who worked out all the the, the codes and the deals between the various capitalists and capital labor. They they knew what they were doing, and this. Brady's great gift, I think, as a non-Marxist is that he understands fascism as the extension of business enterprise in a liberal democracy and how and what Baron and Sweezy called, you know, the jumping off point from liberal capitalist democracy to fascism. What Brady discovers in his what Brady gives us in this book is a is a much is a is a deep explanation of the thing of the kind of organized business structure that people that is predecessor that people in the twenties talked about you know Fay and others who were who actually were in the were involved in building the, the chamber involved in building Nam okay they talked about the necessity for organized business to protect democracy Brady says. A dozen years later, what we've got is the power of, is the absolute dictatorial power of trade associations over the marketplace. And that's what the Chamber of Commerce does today. Does it in my city. It it turns, the Chamber of Commerce in my city can turn chicken shit into chicken salad on any day of the week.
1: (laughs) In the book's conclusion, you note that this history you've recovered has been almost entirely forgotten by more current historians. The writers you've quoted largely disappeared, and their works, in spite of their rigor and precision, and you even quote the Wall Street Journal reviewing some of them favorably, have been left largely ignored. Parallel with this forgetfulness is an American exceptionalism narrative that many have put forward, the assumption being that fascism is a uniquely European Phenomena, and so something that can't happen here. Could you unpack this unique form of forgetfulness that we've cultivated and what it misunderstands?
0: I, I think I think this. It's I think it's cultivated. I think I think this unique form is is consciously cultivated, and I also think it's ideologically driven to a some extent by those on the left who cannot see fascism within the framework of capitalist totality. And so we get various authors whose views on fascism are utterly acceptable in the mainstream press, who talk about fascist lies, fascist politics, fascist characteristics, but fascism is discussed politically, culturally, and from the standpoint of identity, but not class. And, uh, you know, within this capitalist totality, it is class that that, that, that that is connected to all other contradictions within the totality. It is central to all the contradictions. And if fascism is the end game of monopoly, finance, capitalist rule over all of us, what in hell are we doing when we don't talk about fascism as, as a function of capitalist enterprise, as the product of capitalist imperatives, as the result of the spell of the marketplace over all of us? which numbs us all that's solid melts into air but we 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 feel powerless and that's that's fascism is alienation and that we are not getting at that because when we do then we get into these arguments oh well that sounds like Wilhelm right. i that sounds like you know lang that sounds like all these people no it sounds it sounds very real if fascism is the end game of finance capital, is the end game of the ultimate abstraction of money? What is the ultimate form of alienation? <sighs> it's alienation under fascism. It's complete alienation. But it's but at the same time, it's not understood because it's 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 the fabric of society, and none of us are immune from this stuff. None of us. I mean. You can take what I say for whatever it's worth, and you can say, oh, well, this guy thinks he really knows everything about everything. Not true by any means. I am not immune from any of this stuff. We are all walking through this. But the question is, there is a stream of history, as Marx once wrote. He's He he wrote to his niece a very personal letter. It's it's one of my favorite things that, that in the whole body of Marx's, Marx was writing, he says, "You know, I I, I just what, I believe that I want to swim and continue to swim in the stream of history." His life was as open and dynamic as his theories. The Marxist concept of progress is, I. I I, I this is another thing I'm working on. This is this was something I started working on. It was my doctoral dissertation, I, you know. Uh, I, but then I, fascism, became an important topic for investigation in two thousand three, two thousand four, when Bush and the neocons had taken us to into Iraq. And they were talking about, you know, this rogue wing of the ruling class. And Chris Hedges is writing about Christian fascism. And Naomi Wolf and others are writing about, you know, the liberals were writing about fascism. And Meyerson and I looked around and said, well, shit, you know, when are the Marxists going to start writing about fascism? so we did. And it was not easy. And it's still not easy. So I'm grateful for the opportunity to come and talk about this book. And I hope that some of the things that I said about it makes sense. It's, uh, there's, 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 there's just a whole lot to consider by students and citizens at large, you know, um, books a little too long. And, uh, Hopefully, the next book, the sequel, will be about it. be more of a long essay and less of uh, trudging through the stuff. But you know, with a with uh, an annotated bibliography at the end, so people could, here's where I got the stuff. And, uh, but I, we have to find a way to get out of our silos because I'm not very connected to folks on the left. I'm an older guy pursuing music, but I'm an anti-fascist because my work is a, as a Marxist, as, I don't know, is organically connected to a city, just as I wrote in my book, you know? I mean, the book is dedicated to the people of Greensboro. So, you know, we have to find some resolve, in us, I know it's there. There are too many good people.
1: Well, in adding to that, uh, this theme of forgetfulness—you're saying that class is kind of a missing ingredient of a lot of understanding, and that would add uh, a misunderstanding of what is to be done. Because if you—if class isn't part of your understanding of fascism, class struggle cannot be part of your. Understanding of a solution or sort of resistance, which would then compound the alienation. So I think that yes. also yeah. really adds to that.
0: Yeah, well said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. As, Better as, said than I did. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well said. Uh, as a final question that will bring us beyond the text itself, there's been a dic- discourse for the last several years uh, about whether or not Donald Trump is a fascist. And since he recently declared he's running for president again, this discourse is likely to keep going for some time. So while answering that question in detail would require a whole other book, which I won't ask you to write on the spot, I'd like to close at least by asking given everything you've put on the table with this book, how would you like to? See this discourse reframed. Uh, what do contemporary commentators often miss when trying to address Trump as a fascist? And what do you hope this book might do in terms of helping us at least more productively ask the question?
0: Well, first of all, to the extent that the book, to the extent that the book can be useful, look at some of these definitions in the book by our predecessors. For example, Lewis Corey's definition, which I cited earlier, which I think would help us to understand how Trump and Trumpism as the face of American fascism rises up out of this growing sea of dysfunction um, and and, uh, anger Uh, projection of of reality onto just canvases that don't make any sense you know Uh, and I, I, I think the book can help us understand the roots of this stuff but I think what we have to do is actually seriously question what the enlightened mainstream media is putting out about where we are right now and what kind of a crisis it is. Uh, And understand that as citizens, they've got a lot to worry about because of the growing inequality in America. There is no halt to this. Who's responsible for it? And people know, oh, it's the rich, it's the rich, but they don't, we can't categorize what we know. We can't conceptualize what we know because there's no educational basis to do it. And because local media has completely fallen apart, there is no, we don't have discourse at the local level because we have no means of exchanging that discourse beyond whoever we can reach as individuals. All of this is perfect for Trump because what fascists do better than anything is destroy what exists. And if not destroy, eviscerate. And so create what Franz Neumann called in his book on national socialism, when he called his book behemoth, he said the reason why it's behemoth is we've got a lawless, dysfunctional, chaotic, you know, system. There, there is no government. He was talking about the England of the long parliament, you know, and. Um, it's it's not Leviathan. It's it was Behemoth because it's it's total chaos and anarchy because everything has been destroyed. McCarthy McCarthy's speech this morning. I I watched it before this you know before our podcast here, and McCarthy's speech this morning was uh, was cl- a clear indication that. Trump hasn't had to worry about doing anything right now because Trump's fascism is rooted in his ability to perpetuate myths while serving ruling class interests when, it is, when the ruling class needs him. And the ruling class loved Donald Trump between when Donald Trump was in the White House. John Bellamy Foster wrote a book, you know, about Trump being the, a fascist in the White House. We have a fascist occupant. And I agreed with John. Absolutely. But to have a fascist in the White House doesn't just mean that you've got somebody who's opposed to this, opposed to this, and opposed this, this. Trump's White House represented all of the business interests in the South that I am aware of from top to bottom. It's about trumpism and it's about the business system and it's about the extent to which capital itself will become more reactionary particularly in this coming year when the forecasts are are you know to say the least really unnerving what's next Certainly not progress, more dysfunction, more dystopia. I wrote, I wrote for a, a publication. The last thing I wrote was for a German magazine, um, uh, Melody and, and Rhythm. It's the, I think it's the German equivalent of Rolling Stone. I published a piece in 2020, and it was entitled The Masquerade of American Fascism, Capitalist Dictatorship at the Top, Anarchy and Psychosis at the Bottom. They published it all. You know, the whole essay. I was amazed. I mean, you know, I, I there's no English version of it. was in German, but so I couldn't read it. But uh, above my title, they put in German one word, Endspiel. Endgame. Endgame of what? Of monopoly finance capitalism. And these are Germans, these are young Germans talking about fascism <laughs> as a prop as a function of capitalism. And we're they're. This is happening in Germany. What's happening here? In that? In that? In that kind of thinking? Nothing. Nothing. The only way it will happen is as a result of a spark and a movement, where all these, all of us, all of the good people throughout this country, will finally recognize that. Whatever comfort levels we might have, they're all illusory in the end because fascism is about war at home and abroad. And we know, we know from everything that has happened, everything from the brutal murder of George Floyd to the insanity of mass shootings, the wheels are coming off but the folks up at the top are still building their needle skyscrapers into the, into, you know, in, into the heavens. We look up and we say, these people are vile. But then we keep walking down the street as if there's nothing that we can do about it. There is something to do about it. Michael Yates said in a book, The working class can change the world. He pointed out a number of ways that we can do it. And it's about the we, not the I. And when we start thinking about the we, in this moment when commerce controls everything and sets our values, when we start thinking about the we, then there's hope. And I believe I believe that, that the defeat of global fascism must not begin here, but must be firmly rooted here because we, because as I'm attempting to write this new book, in this climate of opinion, we are the most dangerous empire in the world because we have so much to lose. And when I say we, I mean those who own and control our lives and everyone who participates in that. And that's why I can say, I will say this, the fascist Republican Party is the Republican Party that Carmen Hider wrote about in 1934. If we... If we go back and look at the, you know, historians have been doing this for decades now and still doing it, you know, usually on the the basis of some really great book on race, some really great book on gender. What about a really great book on on the role of class and the making of the behemoth? And I suppose that's what I'm... That's what I'm trying to get at now. But again, whatever I write is just part of this discourse that has to begin. And I hope, I hope that people will listen to this and will get something out of it. And, you know, will ask me what I think. So then I can ask them what they think. And that's how you start a discourse, Stephen. Tell me what you think. Don't tell me what you know. Tell me what you think.
1: Yeah, that's a sobering but good note to end on. So, uh, Michael, Joseph, Roberto, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me. And, And peace to you, brother. Thank you.